This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. Dr. Jesse Lamar Andre earned her PhD in human sexuality education from Widener University. She earned a bachelor in women's studies at the Pennsylvania State University. She went on to earn her MSW from Temple University, followed by her master's in education from Widener University. Dr. Andres has worked in various capacities within the field of social work. She began her work doing advocacy for people impacted by intimate partner violence. She has worked with various nonprofit organizations in Philadelphia and Camden, implementing various modalities of therapy with families and adolescents within the juvenile justice system. Dr. André specializes in working with individuals with bicultural identities. Their approach to health aims to empower folks to identify and interrupt maladaptive behavioral patterns that disrupt or negatively impact their physical, mental, emotional, and sexual wellness. Dr. Andre has practiced social work internationally and is passionate about helping future social work practitioners develop a worldview framework, understanding, and respect regarding different cultural aspects of human behavior. She has a number of research interests and specialization, including the experiences of first-generation Afro-Caribbean women navigating sexuality and their bicultural identity as a result of immigration, sexual health disparities amongst first-generation individuals, mental health concerns among first-generation individuals, curriculum writing for culturally competent, comprehensive sexuality education, sexual culture and immigration, sexual migration, queerness, immigration, and cultural identity, sexual-related issues in therapy, including sexual trauma, pleasure, identity. Um, She is currently residing in France, um, but also teaches in the United States. So please help me welcome Dr. Jesse Lamar-Andre. 
Awesome. Well, I am so excited, um, Jesse, to have you here. Jesse Lamar Andre. Sounds great. <laughs> yep. I gotta keep practicing. Um, my tongue needs needs practice. Um, but I'm so excited to have you here to talk about, you know, your perspective because there's so much in what you do um that I think people should be aware of and should, you know, not only, and I think your your focus not only on the people you serve, but to the practitioners that are out there serving them as well, which is fabulous. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about, you know, how you got to be where you are and and what you're doing over in another country right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so I guess we should probably start at the beginning. Um, so my father, uh, you know, I, I was born in Haiti. Um, my father in the 80s at the height of um, the HIV pandemic, um, a little after the CDC made that horribly misinformed and racist um, 4-H club, um, he migrated and immigrated to the States and we joined him afterwards. And um, that was kind of like my first experience, uh, really being in a, another culture, being in a space where I wasn't understood. And the, the, the way that I talked, the things that I believed were uh, vastly different from those around me. Um, and that, that experience of otherness and being reminded that I was an other and uh, people not really taking the time to understand where I was coming from, um, you know, starting in school, um, moving throughout my life really kind of got me into this, into the work of um, the impact that culture, bi-nationality, bi-cultural identity, the, all of the, all of the different ways that kind of like plays on a person. So fast forward to grad school, the first time I'm at Temple, it's my first class, I you know, decided that I wanted to be a social worker. I submit my first assignment and I had an instructor ask me if English was my first language. And I proudly said, no, you know, it wasn't. Um, and she said, well, you write like it. Um, and she said, I would recommend that you, um, you know, take some time off and come back. This, you know, this program might be a little too academically rigorous for someone like you. And mm. mind you, this is uh, this is a uh, social work professional. Professional, you know, they are you know licensed. <laughs> They're in this field because they want to help people. And she said that to me, and I remember just kind of being so shocked um, at uh, at what like what I was hearing. And the whole entire time I was in that class, when I was answering questions and writing papers. Um, and talking, you know, doing role plays about how we would help someone in the situation. I was always being corrected. And it took a while for me to understand that the way that she was correcting me was because she wasn't seeing the fact that I wanted to honor the person and the culture that they're from and let that inform how I practice with them. And so that really kind of like got me started in really thinking about 
like what cultural competence means in social work and in the helping, you know, in the helping professions, because the word culturally competent services is like this key hot, like it's like this hot topic word that we throw out, mm -hmm. but do we really know what it means? Right. So is, is it enough to just say, oh, well, I learned a few key facts about working with someone that is from Pakistan, or, you know, I have observed um, people from this community and I see what is important to them, right? Like culturally competent services has now been reduced to facts about someone's culture and not really looking at how their culture, how their experience is informing their behavior and it's informing, um, you know, all of the things and it should inform how we practice with them and what kind of aid we give them. Uh, so, yeah, so I mean, like, that's really what got me started. And I have been really lucky enough to have had different opportunities um, to uh, take some contracts overseas and and in, in, in kind of like putting myself in these different cultures, I get to see that in action, right? Absolutely. Like I am an interloper. I've come into, you know, the UK. I've come to France. I've come to Morocco trying to provide aid. But am I providing aid with the lens that I think aid should be given? Or am I providing aid and am I supporting it? Am I practicing social work through what someone from this culture needs and what does that look like so that's kind of me and my work in a nutshell so i i, I rambled a bit but I no no i right. think it's fabulous that i mean you're literally living what you're doing i mean which is also informing you as you serve your clients which which is awesome i mean i i i think probably many of us wish we had the opportunity to help people in a way that also really is central to who we are and how we do it based on yeah. so many global perspectives. So you're, you're actually like taking those uh, perspectives and then inf it's informing your practice in a more culturally competent way. Um, yeah. which is, which is awesome. Cause I know you do a bunch of things, not only in, uh, you know, mental health and emotional, but you also get into sexual wellness and how couples, um, culturally communicate if I have that right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and so that, you know, it's quite interesting because when, when I was doing my PhD and a lot of people say, doing PhD is often doing me work, particularly in the social sciences, right? That you have, I mean, even some people in the stems that, you know, they're, they're really passionate about a topic and they decide to dedicate 10, 20 years of their life, you know, pursuing um, this degree. And for me, myself, uh, being a person that was born in Haiti, grew up in Haiti, and then had to uh, live some parts of my life in the United States, I found myself in a relationship with a French person, like with a, with a Frenchman, right? And apart from the common language that we have of speaking French, um, there are so many other different ways cultural differences show up in our relationships. And we don't take the necessary time to really dissect what that means, right? First example is how we communicate with each other. 
um, not just words, right? Like beyond the language stuff, right? Because the language part is just at the basis of it. But how we communicate in, in the essence of what a conversation between couples look like some conversations that are being had right because i have some friends uh here that when we're, we're when i'm talking about my 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 partner's relationship they're shocked that i'm actually having these relationships with him or i'm sorry having these conversations with him and and i'm sitting there thinking well but why wouldn't i have these conversations with him right this is my chosen life partner and the the idea of um certain things being off topic to partners not because you want to keep it from them right but that's just culturally acceptable mm -hmm. i didn't know that right like the simple conversation of you know like your siblings and their sex lives right and i remember an awkward conversation of um my one of my siblings had called me and you know had asked a question about uh cunnilingus and i was i was like here's the answer to that right and my partner turned and looked at me and said, why you talk to like, you're giving that information. Like you talk to your siblings about that. And I said, well, of course I do. Why wouldn't I want my siblings to be having pleasurable sex? And this is a younger sibling. And I'm like, I would want them to come to me and ask for information because I don't want them to go and get it from pornography. I want them to go get it from somewhere that's responsible. And so, uh, and I had posed a question. I'm like, well, don't you and your and your siblings talk about sex and and you know and the resounding no, right? And not no because well it's awkward because family, no because of that's just like not that's just not something that you do. And so I followed up with some of my other friends and I'm like, do you guys think this is a weird conversation to have? And I got the resounding no, 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 no. We don't talk about this. And and so these small nuances, even if it's among friends, right? So how does that play, like, how does that creep up in a romantic, in a sexual relationship? Because love is not all you need. There are other things that kind of factor into making a relationship work. And so, yeah, so all of these like different cultural dynamics of um, how we view relationships, um, what we think relationships should look like you know, what a healthy relationship looks like. All of those are like at its basis are linked in culture. And these conversations are not being factored when these couples are seeking therapy. Well, and what's interesting is, I mean, we, I know probably everyone as a parent um, is also probably thinking about their kids and how they mm -hmm. access information um, and you know, you know, you want them to have accurate information. You want them to yeah. understand, but it, it, it can be a difficult conversation to have, especially when you may not be comfortable in your own sexuality, yeah. you know, in discussing those things. So, yeah. And, 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 and I think this is where I am looking to, um the future and the the younger generation to start normalizing these conversations right because i think what what's what's been happening is we're comfortable in ignorance in the sense of um if we don't talk about it then you know it's okay and we'll only need to talk about it if it comes up right so a conversation about certain issues important issues 
is like we're waiting until it's too late to have these conversations whether it be about okay so from your culture you're experiencing um a social worker as someone who takes babies right and for me in my culture i'm ex what i know a social worker to be is this i'm we shouldn't be waiting until the last hour to have these conversations and to have these frank conversations whether it be about you know cultural differences or sexual identity sexual experiences all of these things right like where we have adopted the let's not talk we don't talk about it um and are comfortable in like in that silence and that ignorance and then are shocked when we get like when we get the outcome which is people who are engaged people who engage in behaviors are doing things um and it's not for the like they're engaging in harmful things or in maladaptive behaviors or um clinicians or social workers practicing unethically right like we're not having these conversations and then are like shocked at the outcome right well and i mean you talk about some of the cultural differences so can you talk a little bit about you know maybe some of the differences that you've seen between you know, the United States and other countries um, in terms of just how, you know, couples connect aside from communicating on the specifics. But are there other things? I mean, I think we were even having having a conversation about um, uh, what was it? I want to say like serial killers or what was it about? Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember now. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a, a family annihilation that occurred in India, and it was shocking because three generations of um, three generations of a family basically annihilated, right? And that is not something that exists or that's happened in that culture because it's a collectivist culture. The reason why this murder happened um, and the person that committed this murder actually had some roots in the United States, and so when he and when he essentially murdered his family um people were talking about how it's the disease of the west right that you have a child that is so independent that they're not thinking about you know the whole the community that they have put their own desires ahead and um pretty much as a result of seeking their own i guess um, individualistic desires is at the cost of the family, which kind of allowed them to think it was okay to, you know, kill the entire family. Wow. That's so sad. <clears throat> um, yeah. So, so I think from, uh, the different, the different experiences that I've had in looking at social work across the globe, um, starting within the United States, like within the United States, um, there has been a culture of, really not understanding what social work is. Um, starting first with what exactly is a social worker? People are shocked to find out that in order to claim the title, it's, it's a licensed trademark. So in order to claim the title social worker, you actually have to have a graduate degree um, from a social work, uh, um, an MSW, and you have to pass a licensing exam, right? So once you've passed this licensing exam, depending on what that looks like in your state, you can actually take on the title social worker. However, from the 60s, um, you know, from the 60s, um, early 70s, when we saw welfare reform changing and the, the, the landscape of the United States changing, 
Um, social work has been synonymous with baby snatchers, right? Mm -hmm. Social workers have been synonymous with part of the system, part of the reporting system that was separating families. Um, during the 90s, when the United States was going through the crack epidemic, right, the social workers would come in um, when they were making the welfare check. And if, you know, and they're the ones that would tip off or report that they suspected mom or dad was using crack cocaine, thereby separating families. So the, the, the history of social work in the United States has veered from what originally it was meant for, which is we have a chosen profession where people are dedicating themselves to aiding and supporting the community and strengthening families, right? So now from the 60s on, there have been kind of like a change in um, the image of social work, but social work is still synonymous with the system. Whereas in India, right, a social worker is someone that is providing the community access to resources. So during the, um, at the height of the COVID pandemic, um, a whole bunch of us, you know, were, were called to India to help the small remote villages kind of like pass out, um, you know, uh, supplies, really learn about COVID and how to support themselves. For me, myself, I was absolutely prepared to have the door slammed in my face to, you know, to have, um, you know, to have kind of a combative stance of the people in the community that I was trying to help, right? Because unless they were coming to me, meaning they're like, hey, I'm volunteering for treatment like I saw in the United States, I was used to combative and people not trusting me. Whereas in this community, a social worker was someone that was actually helping its the, the people in that community access resources. So the if you wanted to know how to apply for a birth certificate, if you wanted um, resources on you know what where to get um, Lysol or where to get hand sanitizers, the social worker was the gatekeeper of the information to the community, and I saw that replicated. Um, also in other countries, which was interesting. And so someone had said, they're like, okay, is it, could it be that in worlds that are developing in nations that are developing, right? The actual, the actual, um, social worker is at its root doing what the, the, um, the you know, definition the do, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're actually assisting the community. And why is that often lost, you know, in other worlds? And then I saw Japan. So in Japan, we, you know, it's it's quite different in the sense of what social workers uh, represent, right? Like they're there, but they're not necessarily, you know, the, it's the support, it's the support as well, but it, they're, it's not synonymous with all of these um, horrible things that we see synonymous in the United States. So it kind of got me to thinking, where did we go wrong in the United States, right? That the helping professions um, have been kind of synonymous with people that are tearing apart communities. And it all goes back to how we in the United States perceive people who are visibly different than us, right? So the others and what that looks like when we actually try to help them, right? Like in these, in these um, homogenous societies, 
the other, you know, there's not really a lot of definition for other, mm-hmm. right? And so diversity or inclusion looks different. In the United States, there's a long history of racism, prejudice, discrimination, and that has not, in the 300 plus years that the United States has been around, there hasn't been much involvement on how pe- how we see others in, um, in relation to ourselves and how we view difference, right? Like now we are moving towards a place where we're not seeing difference as a threat. We're not seeing difference as a deficit. We're not seeing difference as something that needs to be corrected and changed that hopefully we're seeing difference for what it is. It's just different. Right. And the helping professions has not really caught up to that um, because we're seeing difference. So if I, as a white doctor, have normalized being and existence as whitehood or whiteness, the if I encounter someone that is different than that, I like my mind hasn't really figured out how to help and how to work. And therefore, if I'm not mindful, I might be perpetuating bias and the person on the receiving end is sensing that they don't know how to help me. And by all of these things, right now, we're doing more harm than good. Now we are getting into that nasty cycle, which is these people can't be trusted because they don't know, they don't want, they don't know how to engage and interact with me. I just rambled, but I hope that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. I mean, and it's, it's what's interesting to me is how much research you've done in, in, so many different areas. Um, you know, I think one of your um, research projects um, or papers uh, had to do with mental health among first generation individuals. And yes. and so can you talk a little bit about the kind of differences in that? And, you know, certainly, I mean, even as we think about, you know, racism in America and the trauma uh, that comes from, uh, and honestly, I was on a webinar not long ago and they were talking about the continued trauma because it's Mm -hmm. not that we're actually past the trauma. We continue to have that trauma, you know, kind of uh, re-ignited, I guess, um, as we go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, mental health within first generation uh, in, uh, first generation individuals is actually one of my passions because again, this is something that I have lived and I have seen. So for someone who decides to migrate, um, no matter you know, uh, unless they left as a child, like as a, as a young baby where they have no conceivable connection to uh, the, the country that they left, they're kind of grappling with two versions of themselves, right? The person that they would have been if they stayed in their home country and who they are. And a person who is a first generation immigrant, they are kind of adept in walking, you know, like having two foot, like they're two, one foot in each part of the door, right? They have one leg and one, this leg and one foot and the other, and have gotten used to kind of like the balance of of um, identity virtual versus kind of the culture that um, the culture of their host uh, country. So 
within uh, kind of my practice and the work that I've done even before I decided to open my own practice, I noticed a lot of first generation individuals talking about the toll that this duality takes on them, right? There's that. And then for some of, for some of the folks that I saw, contending with um, parents and a community that may not value mental health, right? That may not see the merit of mental health or, um, and, and when I say mental health and mental wellness, um, when you're thinking about someone who's mentally unwell, some of these individuals were like, well, I'm, I mean, I'm not crazy, right? And I asked them like, like what do you mean by crazy? Or, or I'm, I'm not mentally ill, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't hear voices. I'm not, you know, I'm not responding to internal stimuli. I'm not all of these, right? So they're looking at the visual, kind of like the extreme aspect of mental uh, not wellness and not looking at the fact of anxiety, depression, um, imposter syndrome, um, the toll that really navigating this, this dual world takes on a person, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that we really don't know how to work with this population because there's, I mean, the research out there says, okay, they're here, right? Mm -hmm. But what the research is not telling us is how do we work with them? What are some thera therapeutic interventions that are going to be helpful in working with this environment? What are some things that we as practitioners and clinicians need to be mindful of when we are working with this population, right? And that information is not out there unless you are talking to someone, a clinician who's lived it, or if you've lived it yourself, which I have, right? So I'm like, I know what might be helpful. And then trying to always learn new different ways to expand on that, right? Because again, we have, so, and this is what I mean by cultural competence um, in, in, in the work that we do, right? Within the first generation community as it relates to mental health, we have the information, the statistics on, these are some of the things, you know, th this is what it looks like, but the practicality, the doing of the doing part of the cultural competence, we don't have a, a we don't have anything for that. Um, and that, and the, the, the interventions that we're seeing, um, you know, when they're getting that so-called, um, you know, peer reviewed or empirically based and empirically factual stamp saying this is something that is effective, when you're looking at who they're who they tried it on, you're trying it on, you know, um, white middle class families. How does that then translate to a first generation, um, you know, living near the poverty line uh, family that's dealing with this issue? You want me to apply an intervention that has not been tested on them to see if it actually is effective on an already vulnerable population. And this is how we lose people. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. We were talking about the other day about trust and, you know, mm -hmm. um, because there's so, I mean, there's already a lack of trust between... Yes. You know, when when 
folks are doing experiments and research and, you know, whether it's Tuskegee or otherwise, I mean, we could talk about Henrietta Lacks and a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of examples, but I mean, it's, I think the, the challenge, there's such a challenge in creating that perspective and that, you know, for people to be informed that way without, without someone like you who actually is traveling and working in it and really paying attention to Mm -hmm. the behaviors and the, the cultural dynamics. And so Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I mean, I was just in my, I mean, I'm not a therapist or a social worker or anything like that, but I was listening to I think we were talking about it was a webinar on like the Crown Act or something. And um, mm-hmm. we had, a, a, I think Dove put it on, if I remember correctly. And they had physicians talking about the differences in how symptoms show up on dark skin versus light skin. Um, and, and just the basics of what that looks like physically. Uh. Um, So to me, I start thinking when you talk about the mental health and wellness, it's like it can show up so much differently. But, you know, how do people how do practitioners even understand what those differences are when it comes to, um, you know, different populations, different ethnicities, different cultural backgrounds? I mean, that's that's difficult. Yeah, yeah. So. And, and, and as, as I was listening to you talk, um, uh, it kind of like brought back to me kind of my own experiences in that um, and that distrust, that lack of trust that exists. And, you know, we know why it exists. And so we're working to kind of change that. But right now we know it exists and it's impacting the work that we do. Mm-hmm. So within, within, um, within my MSW class classes that I teach, there is a book that I refer back to and it's called, and the the spirit catches you and you fall down. And this book was actually based on a real life factual chronicles um, of a family, uh, a a Hmong child's for American doctors and these collisions of culture. Right. And so in this book, uh, the social worker is highlighting um, their work with this this child who has an illness and how the family's Hmong culture clashes with her American doctors. And when you read the book, if you are not a provider, you're like, there's absolutely no way this would ever happen in real life. And then I actually had it happen to me, right? And so I had, when I was, when I was working in Philadelphia, I had, um, a, I started working with a client uh, and it was an 11 year old child. And the 11 year old child was hospitalized for psychosis and for responding to internal stimuli. Now, mind you, that kind of, um, that kind of uh, symptom, it's quite rare in people under the age of 18. Like, the symptoms of schizophrenia tend to not show up until early, like in someone's early or mid twenties. So the fact that we had a child that was responding to stimuli, it was quite interesting. So I go to the hospital and by like within two minutes, I realized why I was the one that was selected for this. Right. So this is a Haitian family. 
the mother spoke, um, she, she was conversational, but um, didn't feel really confident in her English. The father spoke absolutely no English. And the child, while they had been in the United States for, I think, um, three years, so, you know, had really good grasp of English, was um, actively responding to psychosis. So, again, the doctors are like, well, we're not really going to take anything they have to say at heart because they're responding to stimuli. So, in talking to the family, I understood from mom of her concern, and she had wanted to bring the her pastor to sit in on the meetings because they were talking about the fact that the voices that the child said that they were responding to was the voice of their grandfather who had passed like i think like maybe two weeks before then so you have that like that's the background mm -hmm. of it right and so um the child went to school and was talking about the fact that he had been hearing his grandfather and his grandfather had been kind of like telling him things and, and trying to reassure him that everything would be okay. Now, without no, without, with just that information that I've given you, what would be your takeaway from what this child might be experiencing? Grief. Grief. Mm -hmm. Right. But the, what was interpreted as what this child was experiencing was they're Haitian. They believe in voodoo and so because the mother wanted the the um the, the the pastor there by the way no one asked this child like what these voices were they just automatically started medicating the child right and so the mom when she saw her child and she saw that he had deteriorated from what he was he was fine when he left us for school and now two days later he's not responding he's nonverbal what happened to my child right and the the gaps of culture that existed there and so when i when i actually challenged the psychiatrist i was like why why was he immediately um uh, why was he immediately sedated right because you pretty much have medically sedated him and you know they're like oh well you know, they said that he was responding to internal stimuli. And, and when I'm talking and asking what words were used, right? Like, like, what did you say to this child that they would answer the way that they did? The language that was used, child didn't understand that. This is an, this is an 11 year old, mm -hmm. right? Like, this is an 11 year old. You're using, you're using language that they don't understand. You're confusing them. And so the child didn't get to tell them that like, when he goes to sleep at night, he hears his grandfather's voice, right? Or that he's maybe considering the grandfather died two weeks ago, so he's experiencing grief. Mm -hmm. That we need to rule out a whole bunch of other things before we can start this child on a medication uh, cocktail dose. And so I'm sitting there like, why would you, why would be, why would that be the first act of treatment? And the answers that I got from the psychiatrist, from the nurses, from um, the social worker, I'm like, so y'all just gonna take a stereotype or take assumptions and insert it into how you practice with people and inadvertently cause harm, right? And so the mom, when the child was discharged, stopped the medication. She's like, this, my medic, no, this is not, this, 
this medication has changed my child. And so the social worker comes and asks, is the child taking the medication? And mom's like, no, I'm not giving it to him. Is now being charged for medical neglect, right? Because again, now, because the mom made a decision to do what was in the best interest of her child and the medical community did, you know, took some actions without really taking some time to truly understand mm-hmm. culture, how that impacts beliefs, how that impacts behavior, how that impacts how the person shows up in front of you, right? What they say, how they say it, what all of these things, right? No, that that part was missed for from the uh, providers, from the um, health providers. And so now we have yet another broken family in the system, wow. right? A mother that's accused of medical neglect because she was acting from her own cultural right. guidelines, like her own cultural uh, groundings and a community, a health community that didn't want to take the time to understand. Well, and I mean, honestly, I thank God that you were there to come in. And I mean, because there's a lot of folks that end up in situations like this, maybe not as extreme, but I mean, there's not necessarily a social worker that has a lens like you bring um, to really Mm -hmm. understand that cultural those beliefs or even or even want to know really yeah yeah and and i think this is this is why when i talk about um you know inserting this global framework and this global uh worldview and how we practice social work this is this is at the core of that particularly because um you know not to say that the way that i see things is the way that they should be and the reasons why I believe what I believe are impacted by my travels. And I've been incredibly privileged enough to travel, right? But not everyone that goes into social work will have these opportunities. So how do we give them that education? And that's the part where I feel like is really missed in social work education, right? Mm-hmm. That we've we've narrowed, we've narrowed down or we've whittled down culturally competent practice as just knowing and not the doing part, right? Like, like, what does actually practicing from a culturally competent lens look like? What are the skills that a person has to acquire in order to be able to do that? Yeah. What are some things that has to be considered when I am a social worker about to engage with a family and they might have beliefs that are totally different from mine, mm-hmm. right? How am I processing all of that? Am I aware that it's impacting how I see them? And ultimately, it's going to impact the work that I do with them, right? Right. There is not, that's the part that's not being taught in the helping professions, heck, even in like the teaching professions, because that's a whole other thing. As the sexuality educator, I can say this kind of, um, this kind of education needs to happen among teachers. Uh, but yeah, right. Like the, the doing part of cultural competence is not happening and there's no, there's no, like, it's not being taught. This is how you practice yeah. from an culturally ethical or a worldview lens. Well, it sounds like you need to be doing a lot more speaking and educating. <laughs> um. But then that would, that, but that would take me away from how, why I got into right, it. Right. Because right. I got into it because I wanted to help the, the like the everyday person 
Uh, and that is something that I struggle with, right? Like, do I, do I focus more on my curriculum writing or, you know, like the, the engagement, the public engagement? So more of this conversation is had, uh, but because I can't clone myself and time and energy is finite, um, you know, I, I'm often struggle with where do I put my energy? Like, yeah. like what do I put energy, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm so, I'm, I'm so thankful and grateful that you have done so much research so far. And I know you have um, additional research going on if I remember yes. correctly. And, and I think you even are, are looking for folks to participate in some way, correct? Yes. Yeah. So um, with, as it relates to um, COVID-19 and how it's impacted um, individuals within first generation communities, because again, the, the stats that we're seeing, they're quite disparaging. And one of the challenges that I have within research is communities are lumped together. And what that does is it, it skews the data and it skews how effective the data is because I'm like, if you're saying this is the African American community and you've slapped in there Caribbean Americans and you've slapped in there um, people that are actually from Africa, right? Uh, there are three different, uh, you know, three different categories within just the term black or African Americans or African Americans living in the United States. And the information that you found is now not helpful to any of those communities because we haven't differentiated who it's for. Uh, so I'm really hoping by next year, um, uh, January of 2023, uh, we can roll out this research so that we can actually get the data on um, how, like what we need to know in order to be effective within this community. Yeah, that's so, so interesting because I think even as the, as we try to be inclusive, we don't always realize that, you know, the defining those identities can be really helpful um, yeah. as we move forward because of all of those cultural, you know, sensitivities and com cultural competencies. So, yeah, um, the, and, and I think sometimes people get frustrated in taking a look at the nuances. Um, and that's the part where for me as an educator, as a researcher, as a practitioner, that's the part where I'm like, no, 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 no. The, the detail is in the nuances. Right. Because again, if you're looking at me within the you know normal society, I appear to be a, a like a black, a visible black person or person of color that is, you know, that is American. And it's not until you talk to me that you realize, okay, well, this person, their, their visual identity doesn't really necessarily match up to what they're experiencing. And therefore I have to ensure that any interventions that I want to present this person is actually tailored for them. Right. So understanding that the, the experience of someone who's black Caribbean is inherently different than someone who let's say they're black American born in the United States, mm -hmm. generations of, you know, uh, parents in the United States, that's inherently different, right? While we might share the same, I don't know, racial category, we don't share the same experience, right? right? right. That needs to be reflected in research. 
that needs to be reflected in the interventions. It needs to be reflected in all of it, really. That's awesome. That's, I mean, so thank you so much for, for, you know, just spending an hour. I really want to spend more time talking to you. Um, So I'm hoping you'll come back. And I would love to come back. Like I said, I could talk about this stuff forever, not because I like the sound of my own voice, but I'm hoping that people hearing it, it resonates and it, it, it gives them cause to do something about it. Or if you're the consumer or the person that is receiving services, that it can empower you to ask for these things, right? Because, and, and that's the part that really, for me, drives it home that as a social worker or as you know a clinical practitioner i'm seeing people often at some of the worst times in their life mm-hmm. right that they've experienced some of the most traumatic things that you know that could have happened to them and i need to be able to help them effectively but most importantly they need to be able to trust that if they say this is what i need that it's going to be reciprocated different or um not appealing that it's going to be recognized as valid. Yes. Yes. No. And I'm, you're absolutely right. I think it's, it's just so awesome, all the work that you're doing. And when I think about, you know, just diversity, equity, and inclusion to me, you know, there's everywhere you go, everything you do has some, you know, the cultural competency that you talk about, um, you know, in, mental health, physical health, um, sexual health, human behavior. I mean, there's, it's, it's just, I mean, I feel like the surface has maybe been scratched. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and so I just am so thankful that you, as, as you specialize in, you know, working with individuals with, you know, bicultural identities, you're focused on, you know, immigration, first generation, Afro-Caribbean. I mean, it's, there's just so many layers to some of the things that you're doing. And I'm just so grateful to have met you and to, <laughs> to have been able to, Shout out to Serena. yes, <laughs> thank you. Shout out to Serena Hardinger and fresh, fresh eyes development. So, um, you are over there in, uh, France right now. Yes, I am. But you also work in the United States. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> life life is not easy sometimes. And I recognize the privilege that I, I've been able to have uh, to do that. Um, but yeah, you know, I followed my heart and my heart brought me here uh, and uh, immigrating, you know, for anyone who, you know, who has xenophobic ideas about how easy immigration is. Let me tell you, I've immigrated three times now. It is not easy. Um, and, uh, working here, you know, before I was able to work here, you know, Sally Mae and Navient was still calling me. So I was able to find, um, find a position at a university in Texas, uh, which, you know, COVID really did great things and highlighting how we need to have different platforms of learning and utilize those platforms. And so, yeah, so, you know, being able to teach, um, you know, to teach at the university, but teach strictly online, uh, really, and, and that's what's allowed me to uh, be able to go to these different cultures and, and see what uh, social work looks like and see how that weaves into 
um, you know, the, the community and what practice and care looks like and how I could take some of that and implement it in my own, in my own practice. Fantastic. Well, I mean, thankfully, you know, I love the fact that we have so much remote work and, you know, that you're able to do that. And I look forward to having you back and um, having a, an, and more, even a, and more uh, interesting and in-depth conversation because um, there's so many different things to talk to you about. I mean, we didn't we didn't even scratch the surface on the the surface on uh, sexuality and all of those other things that yeah. you know I was hoping to get to. Um, so we have to have you. I'll come back. I mean, if you want me back, I will definitely come Absolutely. back and talk about sex and culture. Yes, I mean, because you know when you think about diversity and you know, I mean. Obviously, there are differences in all sorts of ways. So um, yeah. I love the fact that you're actually talking about um, some of those cultural differences, because a lot of times we don't hear about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's what I mean by the, the, the ignorance, right? Like that we we identify that there is a difference, like we identify that, you know, it's there, but the conversation doesn't happen right. or if the conversation is happening, it's scratching the surface and not really getting at the core as to what's influencing this behavior, what's influencing this person's ideas, right? Like all of that needs to happen. Yes. And I'm hoping. Yes. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. I thank you so much for having me. Yes. No, it's, it's truly been my pleasure and honor. And I look forward to our next conversation. So we will circle back and um, yes. connect up. And then we'll certainly uh, let folks know when your research, um, you know, the beginning of the year goes live um, so that they can connect on that as well. So keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And thank, yeah. And thank you so much for, you know, creating this platforms to have this conversation. I was listening to some of the other platforms and I'm like, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, yeah. So, I mean, thank you so much for actually creating this platform so that these conversations are happening. Yes, I love it. Well, that's that's the least I can do. So hopefully, hopefully there will be lots more, uh, you know, coming after me. But uh, again, I, I thank you and I look forward to our next conversation. So stay tuned, everybody, because Dr. Jesse Andre Lamar is going to be back. <laughs> That's me, and I would love to come back. Awesome. Thank you so much. Merci encore. Bonne soirée. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.